0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace message from Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. We are engaged in a verse-by-verse study of Paul's two epistles to the Corinthians. Now, let's join the congregation of GCA and our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. This past Friday was my anniversary And I don't celebrate many anniversaries, but I was ordained in year 2000 Cinco de Mayo. So I always remember it. And I celebrate with chips and salsa. (laughs) And (laughs) And so this past Friday, I did what I always do. I sat down and watched the videotape of the charge that Elder Ward laid on me when I was ordained. And do you know where I was ordained? It's Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. Really? Yeah. Because we did not have our building yet. And so Don was very kind to let us have our ordination service in that building. So I have a great deal of affection for that building. And so there were two things that I don't forget that Elder Ward put in the charge Several times over the course of of reminding me and drilling it into my head, he looked at me and he pointed his finger at me. I guess I should add that at my ordination, there were a couple of people of, well, let's say questionable background, one of whom said to me that he was scared to death during the service that Elder Ward was going to point that finger at them and they were going to burst into flame (laughs) because there's a, a power to that man, an authority. A friend of mine, a preacher from Georgia, had come up for my ordination and afterwards there was food downstairs. So we were all gathered downstairs and my preaching friend from Georgia came over to me and he said, I'm a preacher, you're a preacher, And then he pointed at Elder Ward and said, but that's a man of God. So I always used that as the standard that I would try to live up to because Elder Ward pointed his finger at me more than once and said, don't take this work lightly. I wrote that on Facebook the other day, don't take this work lightly because whenever I start to get Tired in the work, not tired of the work, but tired in the work, I am reminded, don't take this work lightly because it would be easy for me to try to trim the edges and make it a little bit easier for me, kind of chop it down to little bite-sized chunks just to make it easier for me. And I keep hearing his voice in my head saying, don't take this work lightly. And then the charge to me was three things, three things, and he repeated them. Preach, teach, love. That was the charge he put on me. And I feel pretty good about the preach, teach part. I feel like I have a large enough compendium of material in our archive section and uh, the Q&A section and the books and everything else that I can say, I've done the, the preach-teach part. I still sometimes struggle with the love part, but that's because some of you are just downright unlovable. And <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he agreed much too quickly. Um, so I'm working on it. I'm still working on living up to the charge that Elder put on me. I'm just grateful that God has given me 17 years of doing this. and I'm, uh, Eternally grateful that men like he and David Morris saw something in me that I didn't see in myself. So let's talk about hyper Calvinism, shall we? Sure. sure, why not? We're here, let's talk about that. Are you familiar with the term hyper Calvinism? You You've heard me say it, okay? So now you're familiar with the term. Many years ago. Jeff and I came in here, and we did the theology talk that's still on our website. I got an email just a couple days ago from somebody who said that was their introduction to GCA, and they're so happy that they heard theology talk, that they heard Jim and Jeff talking about the differences between Arminian theology and what the Bible says and Calvinistic-type theology. And so midway through our recording, that program... Mm -hmm. Jennifer brought us an enormous bag of M&M's, and we devoured them. And at the end of eating all that sugar, Jeff and I were two very hyper-Calvinists. But that's not what the term means. A hyper-Calvinist typically goes so far with the concepts of God's election and predestination that the hyper-Calvinist believes that they don't really have to preach to any other than the elect, so they don't go out and actively evangelize. They start with the assumption that's easy to fall into. They start with the assumption, well, God's going to save who God's going to save. And since God's going to get to all of his elect somehow, it's really not incumbent on us to go out and evangelize. I think we're going to see this morning, and I think we've been seeing the last few weeks, that that's not the Pauline attitude. In 2 Corinthians, as we finished up last week, he was saying, call men to be reconciled to their God. And that only applies then to unreconciled men. Are you following the logic here? So Paul is not preaching a hyper-Calvinistic message. He is preaching a message where God gets all the glory. He is preaching a message where God gets all the honor in the salvation of people through the sacrifice of his son so that God gets all the honor, glory, and worship and no other individual deserves the glory, honor, and worship that only God deserves. And that is why among the five solas, of the history of the reformation one of them is by grace alone that's what i titled the book i wrote i've got one book that's just called by grace alone because this is fundamental to christian theology how do men get saved it can't be by works it can't be by anything that we do that obligates god to save us it has to be by grace it has to be all of grace and it has to be grace alone So as Paul starts the next chapter of 2 Corinthians here, he's going to say, don't take the grace of God in vain. And this is really fundamental and important, and I see it happening all the time in modern Christianity. Let's talk about the word vain for a moment. It's kainos in the Greek. It's a word that Paul uses oftentimes, but if you want to get a feel for how it's being used, go all the way back to don't take my name in vain. What does it mean to be vain? Well, you can read several different Greek dictionaries, and they will start with the Greek word kainos means empty. That's the foundation of the word. But then you will read expanded definitions of the word that mean it's talking about a void. And since nature abhors a vacuum, since there is no positive goodness in vanity, the vanity is filled with evil, with the influx of evil. So we're really talking about an evil approach to the things of God, wherein you use the things of God to heap them on your flesh or to use them to advance you or to make you more complete, to do it in a vain way that leaves the elements of God empty. Does that help define the word a little bit? Because the grace of God is one of the highest attributes of God. We all agree that the highest attribute of God is his holiness. Everything else that God does, he's doing through his holiness. The holiness of God is his primary attribute through which both his love and his wrath flow. But when it comes to the salvation of human beings... You cannot in any way discount the grace of God, which is why we use the word grace here so much. We use the word grace in just about everything. We have it in our name, and it's in our book, and it's just grace. It's grace, 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 because the grace of God is how human beings end up In God's presence and that is not to be discounted that is not to be downplayed that is not to be used in a vain or an empty way because the grace of God is how you end up standing in front of God. There's nothing within you, there's nothing that you can claim, that you can take to God and say, now you should be gracious to me on the basis of this. I did these things, therefore be gracious to me. For grace to be truly grace, Paul argues, it can't be of works. Works and grace are opposite. So to whatever degree you're approaching God on the basis of works, you are lessening his grace, and that is what he means by taking it in vain. Now, also, at the beginning of introducing 2 Corinthians, I said to you that this is one of his most personal letters. It's the most personal letter you're going to find anywhere in the New Testament, and you're really going to feel it in this chapter. If you haven't felt it up till now, you're going to feel it now. It's very emotional because Paul has been through a series of events because of the ministry of reconciliation that God has given him, and because it is incumbent on him to preach, woe is me if I preach not the gospel. If I do this thing willingly, I have my reward. If unwillingly, still a dispensation of the gospel is given to me. Paul feels the weight of the job he's been given to do. And along with that job comes a tremendous amount of suffering, physical suffering, difficulty, Hunger, sleeplessness, he's going to start listing these things again. He's going to bring it up again, that I've gone through a great deal of pain in order to bring you the truth of the gospel. And then he's going to start contrasting, and he's going to say things like, I've become poor so that you can become rich. And he's almost going to create paradoxes again. And then he's going to say, oh, Corinthians, my heart is wide open to you. So he's really expressing a tremendous amount of emotion, the same way that he says, I've been praying for you and writing to you with tears. And I think it would be easy for us to read this stuff intellectually. It would be easy for us to read it and say, Well, theologically, from a doctrinal standpoint, sure, Paul had to suffer. Okay, he was in jail. All right, day and night in the deep. Okay, he was hungry. Okay, well, that's Paul. That's just what he had to go through. But I think if you do that, you're missing the heart of Paul. Because he's saying, my heart is wide open to you. He's pouring out the pain that he lives with on a daily level in order to do the job he's called to. So with that as an introduction... Chapter six starts with the word Kai in the Greek. It's the word and, and I don't think you can start anything with and. Here, do I get an aside? I get in a personal aside. Okay, I'm going to step aside here. So does it drive you as crazy as it drives me? This new trend among folks to begin their conversation: the first thing they say is they go, "I mean, it's okay, you know," or. I mean, well, we went shopping. The phrase, I mean, is a clarifying phrase. You have to say something first before you clarify it. And Jim, even more than that, they start with which so. So, yeah, therefore, suffering. drives me crazy. That English major brain I have, yeah, just kicks right in. So, we can't start with and... Right, we can't start there cuz Paul is actually continuing a thought. So we have to go back a couple verses. Let's so what you're saying. Yes. I would like to start at verse 20 which starts with therefore, so I can't start there. So let's start at verse 18 which starts with now. That seems like a safe place to start. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 18. That is where we're beginning, to build up speed into the and at the beginning of chapter 6. Now, all things are from God. I know I asked you last week. I'm going to ask you again. How many things? All, things? all things are from God. Who reconciled us to himself. Don't ever get that equation wrong. He reconciled us to him. We didn't do the reconciling. We didn't do anything that pleased or obligated him. He, by his grace, this is why I keep emphasizing the grace that is so important and not to be taken in vain, the grace of God accomplished absolutely everything necessary for your eternal salvation. Your eternal security, your redemption, the sacrifice that paid for your sin is all accomplished in the fact that God, by his grace, he reconciled us to himself. So now all things are from God who reconciled us to himself. What's the methodology? Through the law. Is that what it says? No. The law didn't reconcile anybody. No, he reconciled us to himself through Christ. So through the finished work of Christ, through the sacrifice and through the redemption and through the substitutionary atonement of Christ, God was in the enterprise of reconciling people to himself. And that is a theology of grace, 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 grace. Because you're not in there anywhere. Where are you in that sentence? You're the person who's acted upon But you're not the actor. You're not reconciling yourself. And then he gave us, and this is really important because this is now what Paul's going to talk about in chapter 6. He gave to us the ministry, the service. Paul calls himself a bond slave of Jesus Christ. The marks that he had on his back from all the beatings that he took. He refers to as the stigmata, the marks of the Lord Jesus Christ in my body. I bear the marks of Christ. So he paid a very, very high price for the fact that he was conscripted into the service of God. And don't you think at some point, after, let's say, one beating, wouldn't any natural human say, this is hard? This is difficult to do. And i got to assume that there were times when Paul thought, enough. I've done all I can do. Now you can see why he would say, it's better for me to depart and be with the Lord. It's better for me to just get over all this. But it's more beneficial for you if I stay. So better to be away from the body and be with the Lord, that would be a great deal of comfort. And I have to assume as I read Paul, as I dig into Paul, as I try to get behind the things that he's written, I really feel the pain of what he's going through here because he's conscripted into a service that is unrelenting and yet he has to do it because his sovereign God has put him into that position. And so he's been given the ministry, the service, Of reconciliation. And then he describes what that is. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not counting their trespasses against them. Not counting their sins against them. Not counting their sins against them. Not not in any way counting their trespasses against them. I don't know about you. Okay, some of you I do know about. I don't know about you, but I know where I've been and I know what I've done. And I know the stuff that keeps me up nights. And I know the many, many, many times that I've cried out to God, repenting to him for the things I've done and the things I've thought and the places I've been and the things that make up my history. And when I read, he doesn't count that against me? Whoa! Whoa! Amazing grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. Which, by the way, I will say, because I'm human and because I'm an egocentric male, that even though God doesn't count your sins against you, I still have a tendency to count your sins against you. You're nodding too quickly. Isn't that easy to do? Yeah, sure, God forgave you. But... <clears throat> Come on. <laughs> I know what you've done. I know where you've been. Doesn't it seem sufficient that if God forgave somebody, that maybe you ought to just agree with God that they're forgiven? Yeah. Anyway, that's why Paul said, don't know people after the flesh. Anyway, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has then committed to us that word of reconciliation that's the gospel that's what Paul was out there preaching that's the reason that Paul was out there preaching begging men to be reconciled with God doing it with pain all the things he's about to list for us all the things that he's been through for the simple reason that he was telling people be reconciled with God and you can't do that by the law and you can't do that by your works. Now remember again I've mentioned it many times that the Corinthian church had a very large Jewish population and so you have a lot of people in it that are zealous for the law just naturally. For 1400 years that's all they've ever known is the law and now Paul comes along and says your law keeping, your working can't get you justified before God there is only one way to be justified before God and that is through Christ Jesus and that had to be a very very hard paradigm shift for them to get to. And so we had to keep driving that point and driving that point. And that's why I think Paul so frequently quotes the Old Testament and quotes the prophets to say they're all saying the same thing. They're all pointing at Christ because Christ is the only way to God. And then God gave us this word, this preachment of reconciliation. I'm a logical guy, almost to a fault. To me, things have to make sense, and they have to go in logical succession, or I don't agree with it or buy it. And if I can find a logical flaw in anybody's argument, then I think, okay, your conclusion is wrong, because I see where your logic is wrong. Okay, I'm a logical guy. Why won't people be reconciled to God? That makes no sense to me. Makes no sense to me judgments coming the holy righteousness of god is going to stand against you the law of god is going to condemn you why won't you be reconciled because god doesn't want them to because god isn't allowing them to be but enabling them. yeah that that's the only explanation there's no other explanation they don't because they can't but does the fact that they can't lessen the obligation of the preachers to preach to them, be reconciled to your God? No. Well, then hyper-Calvinism is wrong because we are told, as Paul did, that we are to preach to every living creature, just like Jesus said, that we are to go out and preach and teach and love and people will become obvious. You know, in my ordination, which I mentioned, one of the things that Elder Ward said to me was, you won't have to go find people. God will send them to you. Mm -hmm. And in my first few years, I don't think I really believed that. I thought that I had to get people in here and then be attractive enough to them, which is really difficult for a guy like me. (laughs) And then I felt like I was always on trial. I was always being... Sized up, you know, and so I was always trying to uh, appeal enough to people. I still wear a tie when I preach because I'm aware that you all are looking at me and I try to make that a not altogether uncomfortable experience. But anymore, I don't feel like I have anything to prove. I don't feel like I'm being judged by you all. I'm being judged by God. I understand now that I play to an audience of one, and if he's pleased with me, he'll send you all. And so far, that's worked. So I'm not going to mess with something that's working. So we are given this word of reconciliation whereby we tell men, be reconciled to your God. Now listen to how Paul describes that activity. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ you know what an ambassador is we have ambassadors from our nation that go to other nations they are representatives of the United States in foreign countries so they go to foreign countries to represent the government of the United States that is what it is to be an ambassador and Paul said we are ambassadors for Christ so when we tell you to come be reconciled to God and to come through the finished work of Christ, we're telling you that the way that Christ would tell you that if he were here. The way that God has commissioned his gospel to be told. And that is why I get so very upset when I hear people water down the gospel. When they start with, Jesus paid it all, but you got to, and then they change it into some kind of what Paul would call perversion of the gospel. Paul says the very pure gospel, preached correctly by the ambassadors of Jesus Christ, is as though God were entreating you through us. That these are God's words, and that's why I keep telling preachers stick to God's word. Nobody really cares, nor is anybody saved by your words. Stick to what God has said. Say God's words. And when you do that, you become an ambassador for Christ as though God himself were entreating people through the ministers that he has assigned to carry this gospel. And so we beg you, says Paul. We beg you. He's not just getting coldly analytically theological here. He's laid out all the theology. Ephesians 1 and 2, there's all the theology. The Roman stuff on justification, he's laid out all the theology. But at this point, he's down to, I beg you, be reconciled to God. Why would you perish? Why would you burn? Be reconciled. Yeah, we get our Calvinistic theology from Paul. We get our concept of God's electing grace and his predestinary will primarily from the writing of Paul even though we can find it all through the Bible and yet Paul who developed all that theology who knows full well what Wolfgang said a few minutes ago that they don't because they can't Paul knows that and still begs men be reconciled to God. Because the gospel of reconciliation must be preached. Well, and you're right. It's it's also a judgment, which is why Paul wrote to these same folks and said it has the scent of life unto life to some people, and it has the scent of death unto death to other people. Life to life for those who were being saved. Death to death for those who were perishing nevertheless god's word has to be preached both to those that he is saving and to those that he is condemning our job is not to decide who the saved and the lost are our job is to say what god said and what god said is be reconciled through christ therefore we are ambassadors of christ as though god were entreating through us And we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, this is Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. I think I proved adequately last week that the second half of verse 21 proves that Paul is talking about imputation. Because there's no other way to get to that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Otherwise, we'd have to explain how it is that we, by our effort through our flesh, become the righteousness of Christ. And if you think you can do that, go ahead. We'll wait. (laughs) So this is an imputation where God has imputed our sin to Christ, punished Christ, our substitute, and thereby took away our sin debt so that he can now not count our sin against us, and instead imputes the righteousness that only Christ has ever accomplished. He imputes that righteousness to us, and therefore we stand righteous before God. And, there, we got to the end. Okay, good. And working together with him, the NASB adds those words, Just for clarification, Paul is saying, I'm doing this ministry, I'm doing this preachment, and in begging you to come to Christ, I am working together with Christ and with God as though God is entreating you through us as if I am an ambassador of Christ and working together with him. We also urge you not to receive the grace of God empty, not to receive it in vain not to use the grace of God to heap it upon yourself. In other words, don't turn grace into license. Don't say now that God has been gracious unto me, I can do whatever I please. Because that is using the grace of God to heap it upon your flesh, and that's the very essence of what vanity is. That's what egocentricity is. That Christ died to save me because I must be pretty good. So since Christ died for me, I can now do whatever I want. Now, remember, this is the same Paul who argued to the Corinthians, there's no law against me. In other words, I'm free to do as my conscience allows. But then he says, now, not everything is expedient. And he also argues that he would limit his own freedom for the weaker brother. But as far as what he can and cannot allow, he is so convinced that the sin debt is utterly and completely paid that he says, I have complete freedom to do whatever I want. But he's now going to talk about limiting that freedom because it is the power of God and the reality of Christ and the indwelling spirit that does constrain us. So we are working together with him And we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Go down to verse 3 for just a moment, because I think verse 2 is sort of parenthetical. He picks up the thought in verse 3. Let me read it again from verse 1, skipping verse 2 to verse 3, and you'll get the flow of what he's saying. Working together with God, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry not be discredited. So now we know what it is to take the grace of God in vain. Taking the grace of God in vain would cause people to do things that would bring an offense to the ministry. And so he argues that you ought to limit the things that you allow That you ought to act in concert with the idea that God has indeed saved you out of this sin-soaked world. He has elected you. He has poured his grace on you. And therefore, you wouldn't want to do anything that would bring an offense to the ministry of reconciliation. You get the argument? Mm -hmm. Okay, so now we can read verse 2. Because he's going to quote directly out of Isaiah 49.8. And you kind of have to understand Isaiah 49, which is a very messianic passage, but it's also Isaiah speaking in the first person, and God speaking through him is talking to Israel and assuring Israel that even though they have sinned and rebelled, that he is going to restore them. And he specifically talks about he's going to restore them to their land. Okay, so when is that going to happen? How is that going to happen? Well, Paul picks up the essential portion of Isaiah, and reminds this audience, which is largely Jewish, that God has already made a promise of restoration to them, and now it's being done through Christ, because he says, for he says, that's for God has said, which let me also add a little theological point here. Notice that when Paul quotes the scripture... He says, God said. He doesn't say, Isaiah said. And he doesn't say, well, it's just simply written by some author somewhere who was inspired. He said, God says. The word of God is this. God says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Now, Paul is very, very aware of the scattering of the Israelites. He's very aware of the Assyrian captivity. He's very aware of the multiple wars and captivities of the Judahites. He knows God's relationship with Israel up to then, and I think it's brilliant of Paul to go back to that very place in Isaiah where God is promising restoration for Israel. He plucks that out and quotes it so that he can say, Behold, now is That acceptable time. Isaiah quoted God about an acceptable time coming when he would accept Israel, when he would begin the restoration of Israel. Now Christ has come. And so Paul could say, now is that acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now that's part of his inspiration for telling people be reconciled to your God because this is the day of salvation prior to Christ coming prior to Christ dying prior to Christ's resurrection and ascension. The day of salvation hadn't occurred yet. Men could only approach God on the basis of laws and regulations, which could never save them. But now is the day of salvation. And now is the day of God's reconciliation, the acceptable time of God. When he's reconciling men and women, boys and girls to himself, now that is happening. Therefore, knowing that now in the history of humankind, now God is pouring out this grace. Now he has sent his son. Now is the day of salvation. Knowing all that, be reconciled to your God. Do you see it? Do you see the flow of what Paul's doing? He's saying, God has opened the door now. Why would you not go through it? Why would you resist it? Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And then he goes back to his original thought. That we not receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything in order that the ministry be not discredited. So Paul is arguing, you have freedom. You have freedom of conscience. You have freedom in Christ. You have freedom from all your sin, and there is no law against you. But now temper your behavior based on, will my behavior discredit the ministry of reconciliation? Here, I'll make it simple for you. Have you ever heard this? Because I have. In my younger days, I had plenty of people who said, I thought you were a Christian. Right? You all agreed. Because you had been public about your Christianity at some point, and they said, well, that's a Christian person, and then you did something or said something where they, the unbelievers were able to say, well, that's not the way a Christian would act. I thought you were a Christian. And so Paul's argument is, Because you are a representative of Christ, because you are the representative of the ministry of reconciliation on planet Earth, don't do anything that would discredit that ministry. And then you can, with bold face and great confidence of heart, you can tell people, come be reconciled to your God. But in everything, verse 4, but in everything... We are commending ourselves as servants, as bond slaves of God. In everything, Paul says, in everything I've been through. And he's about to list what he's been through. And he's going to wax poetic about it. And he's going to be emotional about it. And in everything that he's gone through, it would have been easy for him at some point to say, let me up. I've had enough. I made it up. Don't worry about it. Just let me go. No more beatings. Let me out of jail. We all just made this up. Enough is enough. But he's going to argue that in everything he endured, he did not give any offense to the ministry of reconciliation. Why? Because he's a bond slave. Because he's totally sold out to the things of God. And that he doesn't have a choice. He was put into this. So he says, in everything, we are commending ourselves as bond slaves of Christ in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses. Let's talk about those four words, because it would be easy to intellectualize those words and not feel the pain behind them. In endurance. The fifth point. As you look at the tulip acrostic, is the perseverance of the saints. The Bible even says those who endure to the end will be saved. And it does require a great deal of endurance. It requires endurance from us simply because we're living in a world that hates Christianity, and so once in a while, our Our friends might argue with us, or we might lose a job over it, or our neighbors won't talk to us, and we think, well, I'm just going to endure through that. Think of the things that Paul had to endure. Think of the beatings. Really put flesh and blood on it. Don't just think of it intellectually as, yeah, he was beaten 39 lashes several times. Think about him being strapped down to a piece of wood and then being lashed by a Roman soldier. Think of the scars that were left on his back and how much blood he lost. Think about all of that, the jailings, the shipwrecks, the hungers. He's going to list these things, the sleeplessness. And then he says, I endured all that. I endured all that so that I wouldn't bring any offense to the ministry. The ministry of reconciliation that was dispensed to Paul was an unrelenting ministry. It never let up on him. And yet he endured through it. And in that endurance, he gave no cause for offense. In afflictions. He's going to list some of the afflictions, like I said a moment ago. But I think I can argue pretty convincingly that the afflictions of Paul were much greater than the afflictions of Jeff. The afflictions of Paul are greater than the afflictions any of us have had to go through here in 21st century America. But that's why I keep saying, put flesh and blood on it. Don't you think there were times when he was in prison? When he felt like, you know, I'm hungry, I've been beaten, I've been thrown into a hole in the ground, enough. What more do I have to put up with? A day and a night in the deep, the Jews hating him, being thrown out of the religion that he used to be high and mighty in. And yet he was brought to such low estate that he was a beaten, bleeding man in a hole. That's affliction. And so he said, through these afflictions, even though I was afflicted, I commended myself as a servant of God by bringing no offense to the ministry. In hardships, I, do I need to list the hardships? I think he's, he's going to do that again in a moment. But it was very, very difficult. And that's what he's trying to get at. It was hard. This is not easy Christianity done right ain't easy but as you've often heard me say the hard thing to do and the right thing to do are oftentimes the same thing to do and nothing worth doing is usually easy so he says I've been through these hardships and yet never brought anything that would discredit the ministry and I've been in distresses. Yeah, don't, don't not read that word. Boy, is that a terrible sentence. Did you like the, the double negative? Did you, don't not. Don't not ever know when you ever not do. Distress. He's used the word distress. That's a powerful word, and he means it powerfully. I have been in distress. And I expect, with all the things we know about what he went through, he did indeed go through distress. I think that we sometimes think that these apostles, and Paul in particular, that he was just magically sustained through these things. But he talked about having a thorn in his flesh, that he went to God three times and said, remove this from me. You don't think that it hurt him for him to go beg God three times, take this away from me? And God's answer was, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace will help you endure that thing. Seems to me it would have been gracious of God to remove that thing. And instead, God used it as an ongoing part of the instruction of Paul and the raising up of Paul. He finally concludes that the things he went through were so terrible because the revelation that was given to him was so glorious. And that if God didn't, keep his flesh down he'd become raised up in pride because he'd be the one marching around saying God speaks through me and so God had to keep suppressing him and suppressing him and all I want you to see is that's tough that's hard that's distress so now he starts listing what he's been through in verse 5 in beatings and I just naturally think that when people get beat, they're going to say something to stop the beating. They're just naturally by their flesh gonna say, okay, let me up, I've had enough. Paul didn't do that because it would discredit the ministry. In beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, do you know what that word means? In riots like at Ephesus because he'd go into places like when he went in and healed a woman who had a demonic spirit by which she was divining and there were men who were making money off her divinations and then he comes in and releases her which is a gracious thing to do releases her of the demonic spirit and the men cause a riot because he's messing with their income he was often in tumults in labors Well, yes, working endlessly, working so hard, in fact, that when writing to the Galatians, he gives indication that he was losing his own eyesight because he said, you loved me so much that if it were possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So there's indication that Paul was suffering, that he had all the thorns in his flesh, that he had taken the beatings, that he had been through the imprisonments. Look, this is a beat up guy. This is a guy who has physically endured because God chose him to preach this message. In labors, in sleeplessness. I like that Paul included that. Because it would be easy to think, well, yeah, well, sure, there were the beatings and everything, but you probably always got a good night's sleep, you know. (laughs) He brings up in sleeplessness, why would he be sleepless? Not only because of the things he endured, but I think because of the psychological struggles that kept him awake. Why do I have to go through this, God? Why am I beaten again? Why am I in prison again? A day and a night in the deep, there's no time to doze off, that part of the job requires sleepless nights. So he included sleeplessness and in hunger. It's very much like him talking about, I know how to be abased, I know how to abound, I know how to be full, I know how to suffer lack, because he has sometimes just simply had nothing to eat. So what is his reaction to all that? All these things, all these problems he has had to endure and persevere through that, did he ever break? Did he ever say, never mind, we made it up? Did he ever say, let me up and I'll tell you the truth, I deny Christ? Did he ever say that? No, verse 6, in purity, which means not mixed with sinfulness, not mixed with chicanery, not mixed with anything that would lessen the truth of the gospel. He endured all of that in purity and in knowledge, in gnosis, in the awareness that God was with him through all of it. Look, I, I've never seen Christ in the flesh. I would like to think that if I ever could, that would be such a great boost to my faith that whatever came my way, I could endure it right you're agreeing because if i could just see christ in the flesh and have him tell me i'm with you i'm sending you this is my work then i would like to think that i would have a a boost of confidence that would never fade and so that's what paul has he has knowledge he has the awareness not only of everything that is written in the scriptures and the word of god But he also has the knowledge of what Christ has done, what Christ has fully accomplished and he's written about it extensively and he also has the knowledge that the things that have fallen out to him have fallen out according to the will of God and that he's completely in the will of God as he's going through it. Have you ever heard yourself say, I wonder what the will of God is for me? And the answer is whatever you're going through, that's the will of God for you wherever you are, whatever you're doing, because trust me, you're just not big enough to get yourself out of the will of God. You know how easy it would be for him to change it. And it would be so easy for him to change that, absolutely. And if he doesn't change it, it's because that's his will for you. And so Paul endured through all of it with the knowledge that God had given him, with the understanding that he had been given. In knowledge, and the next word fascinates me. Impatience. You would think endurance was enough. <clears throat> endurance is kind of gritting your teeth, clenching your hands, and just stomping your feet into the ground and just enduring through it. Just get me through this. But Paul also talks about patience, and he had to have patience because he would go into a city and he would preach the truth of the gospel and then other people would come in behind him And they would preach a a different and a warped gospel so that they could bring disciples to themselves or so that they could make money off the gospel or so that they could just say, well, Paul's simply wrong. You need to go back to the law. That's the way that God is going to accept you. And so he kept having to say the same things over and over again. He kept having to go back to the same people and say, I've already told you this, you know this, but I'll tell you again. And I'll tell you again, and I'll tell you again. Because if you're going to be an effective preacher of the gospel of reconciliation, it takes patience. I know me, now I'm not comparing myself to Paul, but I know me the first few years. I would say things, and I knew it was on tape, and people would come back later and ask a question, and I would say, I already said that. That's already covered. That's on tape. You want to know? Go back there. And then I would say things that I know I've said 20 times. And somebody would come up and say, I needed to hear that. i said, say, where were you the first 19? Because it takes the repetition of telling the same story, of preaching the same word patiently with people. Because not everybody comes along at the same speed. Some people, you tell them the gospel and bang, the lights go on. Everybody's home. And they get it all at once. And they just devour the books by old dead guys. And they listen to everything in the archive. And they just can't get enough. Some people go, okay, I'll come back next week and hear you again. You're interesting. Maybe you got something. It takes patience. But it also takes patience to just do the job. It's more than endurance. Endurance. It's patiently waiting for God to do what God's going to do. More than, well, more than I can count. I've asked God, when? (laughs) When? You said you're going to. When? Or this person seems interested, but they're not quite there. They can't make that leap. When? Are you going to work on it? You seem to be working on them. When? When are you going to... I just have to let everything be in God's time. Whatever God's going to do, God's going to do. And I have to learn patience. So Paul also lists in kindness. Wouldn't you think after everything he had been through that at some point he would have been unkind to perhaps one of the Roman soldiers beating him across the back? Think about the Philippian jailer. That's his jailer. And yet Paul was concerned with that man's salvation. Here, let me give you a practical example of this. When David Morris was here recently, and David Morris puts me to shame, and especially when we stay together, either in a hotel or he's in my house or something like that. And I just watch his life and his routines and his behavior. And he just puts me to shame. And so we went to, you know, this restaurant right here in town, Toots. It's called Toots. Uh, We went there to have lunch one day. And the young girl, who was our waitress, came up and said her name, and it immediately went right out of my brain. Whatever name she used, I don't know what it was. She said what her name was, and I, there's a lot of nodding heads in the room right now. And then, and then it just instantly disappeared. I had no idea what it was. Now, David and I, two Christian men, two preachers, sitting down to eat lunch together, we're, of course, going to pray before, before we eat. And in his prayer, he prayed that God would be kind and generous and saving and he used her name yeah wow is right and i was shamed because i thought i didn't think of that (laughs) i would i would have prayed for the food and i would have thanked god for feeding me again and i would have prayed that david and i had a good time at the table and that the conversation was god glorifying but would i think of the person who brought the food to the table no probably not but david did because he's kind Because everyone he meets, he genuinely wants God to be good to them, and God to save them, and God to draw them. And so Paul lists that in all of his beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and hunger, he never never ceased to just remember the kindness of God, and he reflected that in the kindness that he showed to people. And here's how he could do that in the Holy Spirit and in not feigned love, not in pretend love, but he used an adjective so that you knew what kind of love he was talking about and in genuine love. Right. Now, I really think that's sort of the pinnacle of everything he's talking about because I can't imagine anything more loving in all of human history than the fact that God did sacrifice his son in the place of guilty sinners who deserve judgment, and he sacrificed his son as a demonstration of love. Here in his love, not that we loved him, but he first loved us. And he demonstrated that love, he commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And, well, I'm just going to tell you, I live like an open book. I think that I have reached the point, and and it's a sad reality, I've reached the point where when I read about the love of God, even though I can preach it, and even though I know it theologically, and even though I know it doctrinally, and even though I can extol with words the love of God, I think that through my very hard-headed theological pursuits and through my very doctrinal view of God, I told these men on Friday night, we met together, and I said, I think I've reached the point where the love of God has become a, a theological concept more than something I'm experiencing and taking comfort in. And the example that Micah used was, yeah, it's reached the point where I wouldn't be able to just put John 3.16 on Facebook, because somebody would say, well, what do you mean by that? Are you becoming Arminian right now? And I said, yeah, and I'd come in right behind you and post John 3.18, because I just automatically feel that I have to balance the love of God. Yes, it's true that God is love, but our God is also a consuming fire, and our God is primarily holy, and he's not all... And in the process of doing that, I think I've almost dumbed down the reality that God is love. And that God's love is demonstrated toward us in that he gave his son for sinners like us. And I forgot to cry over that. I forgot to feel that. I forgot to be broken by that because I was so busy being theological about that. And so Paul says he endured everything he went through. He was patient through all of it, and he was kind through all of it for one reason, because of genuine love. And I don't want you to miss that, that he loved the people of God, and he loved the people that God was redeeming, and he loved God himself so much that he was willing to put his body through that kind of torture because he loved And I think that's a kind of sacrificial love that I think we're called to demonstrate. And I'm really glad that God woke me up when he did to the fact that I was going down a road where I was making his love a theological concept and not an emotion, not a reality in my life where I felt comfort in, in the love of God. Does that make sense? So then, after in genuine love, verse 7, this is how he makes sure that he brings no offense to the ministry of reconciliation. This is how the ministry of reconciliation is not discredited. In the word of truth. I'm a fool for that. That's what I keep going back and driving again and again and again. The word, the word, the word. If Paul himself could say, God said, and quote scripture, then those are God's words. And God's words are much more important, much more vital, obviously much more salvific than any word I can come up with. And God used these words to say these things to his people. So I have to make sure that I'm presenting these words to God's people. Because if you come here some Sunday and all you get is a bunch of gym, then you're going to walk out of here as empty as when you walked in. Because I've just used the pulpit in vain. I've just used it to advance me. But if I'm advancing the cause of Christ and the word of God, then people are going to walk out of here extolling the virtues of God. And that's what we're called to do, so that he gets all the glory, so that he gets all the honor, and that we are merely bond slaves to him. The word of truth, that's how he did it. And also in the power of God, he was kept by God. He persevered by God. He was kind through God. He recognizes that it's not his own flesh, that he didn't do it because he sat down one day and said, how can I be the most effective minister for God? Let's see. I think I will tap dance, and I'll smile a lot, and I'll use jokes, and I'll tell fishing stories and talk about my golf outings, because Paul was a big golfer, and make no... Oh, anyway... So he said it was by the word of God and by the power of God. In other words, despite all the things he had to suffer, the endurance, the patience, the kindness came from God. Didn't come from his flesh. These were gifts that God gave him and he gave God all the glory for it. Now look at the next verse. By the weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. I have read many commentaries that then go off on what those weapons must be. It's in the verse. We know what the weapons are. It's one sentence. He has already told us what the weapons are. The weapons are the word of truth and the power of God, right hand and left hand. So he's making reference to those as being the only weapons he has to use against the enemies who have so badly beaten him and jailed him and confined him and told him to shut up and go away and cause tumults around him, stoned him and left him for dead. The only thing he responds to them with is the word of God and the power of God because the power of God and the word of God can do things you can't do. We use the, the word of God when we're dealing with human beings who oppose themselves. We don't try to be clever We don't get logical. We don't go, well, I can probably talk you into this. Because as I keep on saying, if I can talk you into something, somebody smarter than me can talk you out of it. But if the word of God gets a hold of you, if the power of God gets a hold of you, nobody can talk you out of it. Anybody here, had anybody ever try to talk them out of it? Yeah, plenty. You were the only one who raised your hand And I appreciate that. In fact, I'm going to spend the rest of the morning just preaching to you. (laughs) Because you're with me. You're right here with me. Tracking with me. Sticking with every word. I raised my hand. Her hand flew up. The rest of you just kind of lightly nodded. It is the power of God and it is the word of God that are our weapons of righteousness for our right hand and for our left hand. And then Paul starts creating these wonderful contrasts that, like I said, are almost paradoxical. And he gets a bit poetic. And he says that in this ministry that he's been given, in this ministry of reconciliation, in the process of not bringing any offense or discrediting it, he has experienced both glory and dishonor. Sometimes there's the glory of seeing God do marvelous work. Don't forget, sometimes he saw people saved like the Philippian jailer. He saw churches established. He saw the power of Christ and the miracles of Christ. You don't think when he was on Malta and he healed a bunch of people that he saw the glory of God? And in dishonor, the direct opposite, he was dishonored everywhere he went. Because he was jailed, because he was beaten, because he was stoned, because he was left hungry, because he was left in the water, because he was because he was preaching the things of God which human beings just hate. And so he was both in glory and dishonor. By evil report, there were those who reported that Paul was wrong, that Paul was preaching against Moses, that Paul was being antinomian, that Paul was preaching a gospel that wouldn't save you, had to go back to the law. There were people who said that Paul was just going around trying to advance himself. So by evil report and by good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true. And that's all part of the ministry of reconciliation. We're telling the truth. We're telling the truth. But I get email on a regular basis and certainly comments on YouTube. They say, you're a deceiver. You're a devil. You're leading people astray. How dare you preach this gospel? Don't you know God loves everyone? I get name called constantly. So I kind of relate to this when Paul says, we're considered to be deceivers, and yet, yet we're telling the truth in the things that we're saying about God. As deceivers, yet true, unknown because Paul could travel in various different regions and they didn't even know what Paul looked like in fact he says at one point they say his his letters are weighty but his personage is kind of weak because Paul had nothing no good looks, no great stature to recommend himself he had no great wealth, he had no great power or authority and he would go into a, a city for the first time and nobody knew who he was (laughs) <laughs> fair enough unknown yet well known and I've poured over that thinking what is he getting at I think it is that he can go into regions where he's not known at all and yet when they find out he's Paul the apostle who wrote these weighty letters he's suddenly well known but I also think he's talking in some degree about the fact that he's well known by God and that it doesn't matter if men don't know who he is. That God knows who he is. The of God who he is. Absolutely, and that's enough for him. As dying, yet behold, we live. There's one of those great Christian paradoxes. We go up by going down. We live by dying. We, we get by giving. If you want the high seat, take the low seat. These are those Christian paradoxes that Paul is so good at, that the Eastern mind is so comfortable with. He is. He's a dying man. He's being beaten. He's being beaten to death, quite literally. He's going to end up being beheaded at Rome, according to best tradition. He's a dying man, and yet he can say, but I live. I'm going to leave this body. Certainly what we've been reading the last couple of weeks is him talking about the fact that he's going to depart this human tent and then he's going to go be with the Lord and he's going to live eternally. And if you can get a hold of that, then the things of this world just won't matter to you as much. When you know that you step from this life into life, then you kind of look forward to just going home and being done with all of this. And there's nothing that human beings can do to you if you know that. Because the worst thing they can do is kill you, and that sends you home. So there's nothing this world can do to you to keep you from living, even though we're dying. Should I take a moment and tell you this quick story? I, I am. I'm going to tell you the story. I know it's getting later now. and We've got to wrap it up pretty quick, and we, we will. But there's a Puritan, and I can't remember the man's name at the time but he was dying and they sent a letter to his daughter to let him know that he was dying and of course mail in those days went by donkey and went by a horse and it took several days it took a long time it could take weeks for a letter to finally reach its intended recipient if they could even find that intended recipient So the letter reached his daughter a few weeks later, and she read the letter that her dad was dying. And so she immediately went to where he was. It was a several-day journey, and by the time he got there, he was just barely alive, laying there in the house. And she said, is he still among the living? And he said, his last words, which is why they were recorded, he said, I'm still here among the dying Soon I will be among the ever-living. See, now that was worth it, wasn't it? Because that perspective matters. As long as we're here on this planet, in these human fleshly tents, we're still here among the dying. And yet some folks are going from here into ever-living, real life, eternal life, the life that God has intended for us since before the foundation of the world, which is a whole lot better than this dying, decaying tent of human flesh. So he could say, we are dying and yet we live as punished and yet not put to death. Well, he's gonna be put to death. They're gonna put him to death. They're gonna do their worst. They're gonna kill him. And he says, you haven't put me to death. I'm gonna keep living as sorrowful now look at that word Paul is admitting he's opened his heart here and said I have a lot of sorrow I am full of sorrow this is a hard life he's in so don't just read by that and think intellectually oh okay Paul's just mentioning general sorrow no he's saying the things I have endured for this ministry have brought me to the point of genuine sorrow and yet Even in the midst of that sorrow, yet always rejoicing. Why? Because we know the joy of the Lord. Because we know where we're going. We know what we're going through. And we know at the end that there's great joy for us. So we endure the sorrow looking forward to the joy. And even in our sorrow, we're always rejoicing. That's why Paul talks about the peace that passes understanding. I have been in circumstances and I'm sure you have been as well where people just can't believe that we are at peace in the midst of this kind of trouble. And they'll say, how did you get there? Why are you okay with this? This is awful. Why are you... Because God ordained this for me. And I know my father loves me. And I know that he's doing this for my good. And I know that he's making me into the person I'm going to become. And I know that there's great joy in the lord and it'll create for me an exceeding weight of glory it will make for me an exceeding weight of glory so as sorrowful yet always rejoicing as poor and yet making many rich so paul saw himself as having lost everything don't forget pharisee of the pharisees hebrew of the Hebrews. He was Before the law blameless, he was part of the Sanhedrin. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel. These were not cheap things. He at one time had great power and great authority, and yet he was broken down to the point, like I said, where he was beaten bloody and in a hole in Rome. So he was poor. He was destitute. And yet he would put up with that because he was making others rich. Rich with money? No. Rich with the Spirit of God and the knowledge of Christ And the reconciling work of God. And he was willing to be that poor. That debased in the world. So that he could bring the richness of Christ to others. As having nothing. And yet possessing everything. I got nothing in this world. If God strips away everything you have. But you have him. You still have enough because you are joint heir with Christ in everything that God has foreordained and predestined as a reward for his son. And by the way, how big would that reward be? What are the limits to that reward? You several and your several lotteries, <laughs> several lotteries and you're going to be joint heir with Christ in that, then really, if you lose everything in this world, you still have an inheritance undefiled waiting for you in the heavens, and you genuinely have everything. Our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. We're going to pick up there next week. Paul is just opening his heart to them. And he's going to say in a few minutes now, open up to me. This exchange that we're in the middle of, of me telling you the gospel through great pain and and bringing you the riches of Christ has cost me a great deal. There's a great deal of sacrifice, he says. There's a great deal of pain in the midst of it, but I endure all of it with grace and kindness because of the power of God and because of the word of God and so I'm willing to endure these things in order that you might have the benefit of Christ so be reconciled to your God and I've opened up my heart to you so don't miss that Paul's being really emotional here and he's really pouring it out from his very spirit that's the depth with which he loves them And they were a lousy church. (laughs) But he loves them. Sacrificially, he loves them. So he keeps bringing them the riches of God's word. And that's love. You want to know if somebody loves you? Preach, teach, love. Make sense? Makes sense. Am I alone up here? No. Okay. I can't understand the torture. I can take death. You know death can be, it'll be over. That torture. I don't know. I know. I don't get it either. But I'm willing to believe that before this whole thing wraps up, like I keep saying, cheer up, saints, it's going to get worse. There are, there are Christians in the world right now enduring torture. And it, and it would be easy for us to ask, why God? but he has a long, rich history of utilizing the evil of men to bring about his glorious purpose. And with every one of those saints, with every one of those martyrs who dies with Christ on his lips, it is testimony that Christ is still alive in this world. And I think that's a glorious testimony. I joke, I use this line all the time, it's like a joke, I've enjoyed as much of this life as I can stand. But the the reality is, when you see the wickedness of this world, my heart longs to go home. Right. My heart longs to be with Christ. My heart longs for the kingdom to come. And they don't long for that to be for their children. They'd rather die and their children die than to have to than, than to, to have to stay here and go through this. Yeah, I get it. I get it. You know, we've all lived in a wilderness period where we were just obliquely blind to all of it ourselves. And you wouldn't know you wouldn't have any concept of your sin or of his redemption and yet he told you and yet out of all the people on the planet he told you specifically what he was up to in your life isn't that amazing i mean i figure he's got stuff to do he's keeping the planets going and Universes orbiting and atoms and nucleuses going, and he's got stuff to do. But he took the time to tell you that he loved you and sacrificed his son for you, and that's remarkable. And I think sometimes emotion is appropriate. Anything else? Yes? How does the philosophy of hyper Calvinism that says you don't have to go everywhere and preach? deal with the Great Commission where Jesus himself said to go into all creation and, and preach the word. Do they just say, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, and turn the page? Essentially, yes. So they don't even try to answer it. They just, let's look at something No. Else. Typical of hyper-Calvinism is a very truncated gospel. Absolutely. The same way with the free grace guys mm-hmm. who talk about the grace of God but not the works that, that follow it that you also ought to live according to the fact that you've been saved. They truncate that part. Any errant theology anywhere, and this is actually the answer to the question, why are there so many denominations? It all comes down to because people don't like parts of the Bible. And so they truncate it and create a denomination that, that doesn't pay attention to that stuff. The whole word of God creates one faith. And all the churches would be united in that one faith if all the churches would pay attention to what the God of the Bible has said. Make sense? We sure saw that in California where there were vast chunks of the
1: Bible. Oh,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) Yeah, true. Anything else? This Wednesday night, Miles McKee from Ireland will be here. I expect every single one of you to be here i don't care what your schedule is i don't care if you're not used to coming to church on wednesdays i don't care if you're busy that night cancel it and be here because he's come all the way from spain so i think you can come from some area of nashville so (laughs) oh i got an okay out of the woman who already agrees with me anyway so be here wednesday night let's Let's have a good showing for Miles McKee. Last time he was here, there were folks who came up from Atlanta to be here with us to hear Miles preach. So come here, my friend Miles. Say goodbye to these internet folks. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.